and talking to our friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Loveless. And I'm Danielle. Hey, everybody. This is an all-Hellboy podcast. We're reading all the Hellboy comics and sometimes some books. Hey, sometimes actual hey, books in the book yeah. club. And Read every- some books <laughs> in your book club. <laughs> I know. It's about time, right? And every week we interact with our listeners, and now Danielle's going to tell you all about it for 101 times. Oh, man. 101 <laughs> times. Uh, we're a book club, and we read books... And then we're going to talk about the books, and then you're going to listen to us talking about the books, and we're going to tell you what books to read, and you're going to read them, and also, you're going to have some things to say, that's a hey damn guys, you're going to you're gonna come up with an email, or you're going to go to the Facebook, or something like that, you're going to talk about what we talked about, and you're going to talk about it, and then we're going to talk about what you talked about when you talked about what we talked about, <laughs> and that's called friendship, yeah. and a book club. And yeah. so then we're gonna do it all over again with the next thing that we're gonna tell you to read. Aubrey tells you Aubrey tells you to read it, and then you do that. Man, that's a that's you got a book club. There you go. Thank you so much. So it's like a Groundhog Day, but in book club form. Yeah, kind of like that. A little bit, a little bit like that. Yeah, and if you've been enjoying the show, leave us a review or share us on social media. Follow us on all the social media platforms. I want to shout out. Meat-based Beowulf cluster on Twitter. Shouts out to that string of words. <laughs> they said, start listening to the Hellboy Book Club. End up getting myself a wee treat. Only 90 episodes left till I catch up. And they posted a picture of all the library editions. Oh, okay. So they nice. went out and splurged on all the library editions. So, so that's awesome. Yeah. That. Who is this nice. that we're talking about? Meat-based Beowulf cluster. Okay. <laughs> that's the username. Yeah, so thanks so much for the shout out. I also want to thank Ross Radke for coming on the show and doing a bonus episode with us. It was great to talk to him. And I hope you oh, guys yeah, enjoyed great. some uh, extra content this week and friendship. And friendship. Yeah. I want to give an update on the prizes. Everyone who won comics, the prizes have been mailed out. I think Ross Radke is still working on some of the commissions, but I should have reached out to you and given you a tracking number and all that stuff. So thanks again to all the winners and keep an eye out for our next fundraiser giveaway that's going to be coming up soon. So fucking cool that he did that. Yeah, it was really awesome. I can't wait to see. I've already actually seen one of them. Oh, yeah? One of the sketch cards. Oh, but man. yeah, um, we'll wait and then maybe Ross will post sure, them on, right. yeah. on his social media and then I'll retweet those. Right, right. And now we're going to go on to our listener feedback. So get out your treats and floppies. Get out your hardback copies. Digital print is fine. You can read along in time. I want to thank everyone for all the congrats on our 100th episode. Everyone had really nice things to say. I'm so glad to be sharing this experience with all of you guys for 100 times. (laughs) It really warmed my heart to read all the comments. The community has been so supportive. And I'm not going to read all of them, but I wanted to read a couple. Ryan Rollinson said... Ryan Rollinson. Book club member. Congratulations on 100 episodes of the book club where you read the books and talk about the things and we read along and send in stuff we want to talk about and then you guys read what we wrote and talk about it too. All right. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Ryan. Yeah. Lars Volt said... Lars Volt. Book club member. Rad work team, a pickle feast has been prepared for you <laughs> in Cucumboria. Oh, man. Delight in the knowledge of vril fermentation. <laughs> Sounds yummy. That's great. We also got a congrats from Lawrence Campbell, oh, Lawrence which I thought Campbell. was really nice. Yeah, thank you oh, for wow. saying that. Lawrence Campbell, book club member. Oh, man. Uh-huh. I don't know. Question yeah. mark. Okay. And uh, I also had to shout out Adrian Robinson. 
I was dying at this comment. He posted a clip from the anime Evangelion, and it's this part where everyone's just saying congratulations for okay. like five minutes. Oh, wow. Know? Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. It was really funny. It's on our Twitter. Maybe I'll post a clip of it in here. But it was just, it made me laugh. So thank you for posting that. Congratulations. 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 Thank you all. Tom Barnett gave us a special cheers. He showed us a picture of him enjoying some Traverse City whiskey and cheering us on our 100th episode. So thank you for that. Uh, What a sweetie pie. Yeah. That's nice. And everyone seemed to love Matt's comic too. We got some great comments on that. Great. Eddie White said, I think Mignola should have brought Matt Strackbine onto the team. (laughs) Yes. Christopher Egan said, the likenesses are uncanny. Mark's hair is on point. (laughs) And Clayton Schofield said, it was a custom job. I don't know why, but this is probably my favorite line where I have the sword oh, yeah. and they say cool sword or whatever. He yeah. said, uh, congrats, you damn guys. And Matt, this was holy fuckaroos incredible. What a great guy. It's very true. sweet. It was very touching. I still can't believe he did that. That was, I mean, yeah. four full pages of this. Really sweet. And Jerry Turnbull said, I love Matt's new Wii comic. A really nice touch from Matt to see Mark in there, too. And Mark said... Oh, yeah, that was great. Yeah, Mark said, awesome, pure awesome. It was a great surprise. I wasn't expecting to see me in there. <laughs> and then Ryan Yule said, it makes sense it was you, though. Yeah. Aw, you guys. Yeah. Oh. And, I mean, it totally did, though. <laughs> yeah, it really did. That was a, that was definitely appropriate. And Mark also said, hey, you damn guys, you're genuine nerds now. So it's official. Uh, It's official. We got it straight from Mark Tweedo. Thank you so much. (laughs) Awesome. Do we get membership cards now? I know. We should, right? (laughs) Lobster cards. Okay. That would be the membership card, right? I say I've only been waiting for my genuine nerd card for 45 years, so (laughs) I I can wait a little longer. We had some feedback on the visitor. Brian Levy responded. We haven't heard from Brian Levy in a while. Yeah, remember he said, "I love this series. Totally unexpected from its announcement to what the book actually ended up being—a gem in the Mignolaverse." And regarding the visitor, God rest you, Mary. That was that short story that we read where they fought the evil Santa Claus and all Mm. that stuff. Mm -hmm. Jerry Turnbull said is Michael Mathers doing some kind of Jedi mind trick. So there, when he's talking to Broom, he holds up his hand. Mm. I didn't notice that. And he's like... Huh. When, he, uh, when, when he asked that, I was like, ooh, maybe he is. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. But then it doesn't seem like Broom's really affected because he's like, I think I recognize you from somewhere. Or maybe that's what he was doing is he was like trying to... I don't know. So that way he wouldn't recognize him. I don't know. It was an interesting little detail there in the sure, art. Yeah. Or maybe he was doing that and he was all like, wait a minute, maybe I recognize this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Stand around like a Jedi or something. (laughs) Reverse Jedi mind trick. I want you to remember. That's interesting. Okay. Thank you guys so much. And for this week, we're going to be doing something a little bit different for our book club episode of the week. We're going to be talking about Hellboy, an assortment of horrors. This is one of the anthology books from the Hellboy novels. And so there are a couple that collect these non-canonical short stories. There's all the odd jobs ones and stuff like that. And, you know, we're not going to go through all those, but I wanted to get to some of these stories that are considered canon. And in Hellboy Assortment of Horrors, there are two stories that are considered canon. This book was published in August of 2016. 
Mignola provided the cover illustrations for each story, and Christopher Golden edited the book. Golden is an award-winning and best-selling author of horror, fantasy, and suspense novels for adults and teens. He is also known for his many media tie-in works, including novels, comics, and video games in the worlds of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Hellboy, Angel, and X-Men, among others. He also wrote the Baltimore and Joe Gollum books with Mignola. He's also known for me briefly confusing him with Michael Golden. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that happened. (laughs) Yeah, so the first story that we're going to be discussing today is called The Promised Smile. It was written by Rio Yowers. He is the British Fantasy and Sunburst Award-nominated author of Westlake Soul and Halcyon. His 2017 thriller, The Forgotten Girl, was a finalist for the Arthur Ellis Award for Best Crime Novel, and he is the writer of Sleeping Beauties, a comic book series based on the best-selling novel by Stephen King and Owen King. Hmm. And I want to talk about the illustration here because we get like a really cool illustration of Hellboy, and behind him is a skull, but we just see the bottom half of it. There's like chapter illustrations. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and so the smile, the bottom part of the face right. is going to kind of play into the story. So I thought it was cool how they how they did that. Yeah. It almost I, looks like a um like a black and white watercolor. Like either watercolor that printed in black and white or just use gray tone watercolor. Oh, you're right. It does look like a watercolor. Yeah, it's really cool how they have Hellboy's face in shadow and stuff like that. Even though it's not an illustrated story, it definitely sets the mood for yeah. what we're going to get into. I like that. So we have an entire book here. This is a book full. I mean, we're only reading two stories out of this book that are, you know, however many, a couple pages long. Right. Out of an entire book. This is a thick book. Yeah. Uh, so why are there so many non-canonical? What's the difference between how do, how do you, how was it determined that this one was canonical? Okay. That's a good question. So we actually haven't come to what is going to tie into the comics from this story. Okay. But something from the That's comics fair. is going to tie into okay. the story later. All right. And then you're going to be like, oh, That's remember that thing. story sure. that we read. Um, so basically, if it ties into the the graphic novels. Right. Like, exactly. Okay. Yeah. It's got sequential art to back it up. Sure. Sure. Okay. Interesting. And then so the rest of it is just like, hey, we wrote the story, but it doesn't really tie into anything that's actually been in the yeah, well, comic books. Remember when we read the weird tales, those are considered non-canonical and I remember when we talked about those, some of the ones that we really liked, they had elements that were kind of like, mm, I don't know if that fits. Like, right. Liz is afraid of water for sure, some reason, yeah, you know? Weird, and we like that story, but that doesn't really tie into the canon. And I actually haven't gone through all the stories, but I think some of them maybe have stuff like that where maybe it doesn't totally line up. Okay, or right on. maybe they didn't want to accept Slightly it as part universe. of the canon. Okay. Or maybe there's stuff in the timeline that negates you know what i right, mean like really work out exactly so so who makes that call is it the editor who makes that call i'm not really sure yeah i'm not really sure let us know i guess i guess I, it would ultimately be mignola who's like actually this doesn't have to do with anything that's part of the thing so right and he might it's have nice said though, like, thanks it's and, a good story and, and with this story he might have said oh i like this piece in there sure. and i want to tie it into okay. something that i that we write later right all yeah. right cool so yeah. anyway sorry about that that was just a little no that's an important that because it is a whole book and it's curious. Um, like we talked about last week, these books are on the Hoopla app. If you have a library card, that's how I listen to both of these stories, and I also read them in the book, and then they're also on Audible as well. And Which is how I uh, listen to the books. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, if you are wanting more content, you know, the, the podcast keeps me pretty busy, and I just kind of wanted to stick to the canon stuff instead of going through all of the books, but... 
if you're dying for more material, I highly recommend, you know, digging into these books. I did enjoy the audiobook. I like the guy that read it. I wish I would remember his name. Do you know the name of the guy that read it? Hold on, I got it right in front of me. Oh, I had it right in front of me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> here we go. It's Seth Potowitz. Okay, yeah. Okay. I like him. He does a good Hellboy voice. Oh, nice. Um, when Hellboy's talking. So, yeah, that was pretty good. I, I have to admit, like, uh, when I was listening to the audiobook, I started to... He started to sound a little bit like Will Wheaton to me, and that's and not in a bad way or anything like that. So this main character in this first story, I just kind of pictured him as Will Wheaton. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this story is interestingly written. We open up and we're on a boat with this rookie agent, and we don't know right away who he is, but we're going to learn his name is Casper Morrow, and he's with Hellboy, and the book is kind of the point of view of Agent Morrow. And so we're kind of just thrown into the story, and we're thrown into what's happening, and then he has flashbacks on the boat ride where he's like remembering how they got there. That actually kind of that actually kind of threw me off the fact that it was written in first person. Yeah, I was kind of like, oh, what? It took me a couple pages to actually get into it because it kept at. I didn't really know how to settle into right. The book. Yeah, uh, so uh, this isn't like it's not. I'm not trying to be. Uh, I don't want to give too much criticism because who the fuck am I? I'm not a. I've never written a book, so I don't know how that works. But yeah, it just was kind of threw me off a little bit. I guess I, I normally expect stuff like this to be written in third person. Yeah, I don't know. So it was weird because you start to get, I, like I'll be going along. I'll be like, okay, and I'm starting to. I've bought into it. I'm right. I'm relaxing into it. I'm kind of you know in my little jello mold of the book here, and then all <laughs> of a sudden it'll be like a paragraph of. I know karate and I'm good at it. And I'm like, okay, wait, who, wait, hold on. Is this fan fiction or is this a story? So it's kind of, there's little parts like that that were a little bit jarring, but then when it gets to the dialogue or when it gets to the lore, I am all in. I am just totally bought in. There's there's so many fucking cool moments here that there are so many cool fucking ideas. There's so much like, I mean, we'll get into it, but yeah, there's, there's so much about this story to love. That those parts that kind of, you know, threw right. me off are easily, I was like, okay, forget about that. That that was kind of weird and whatever, but this part is cool. So that's, that was my experience with the story it was kind of like a cafeteria line of. Okay, yeah. No, and, and it's funny you mentioned that because I actually, I, I actually kind of liked that. Sure. I kind of liked being yeah. thrown into the thing and like, okay, I got to get my bearings here and kind of figure who out is he talking what's to? going on. <laughs> I can't well, figure it, it out. Let, is he writing a journal? Like, what is let, this? Well, let's bring this back okay. around. That that's a great idea, and let's bring that back around when we get to the end of the story. I want you to. I want to come back to that question. Hellboy and Morrow they ride towards Apitua in a dilapidated sampan, which is a flat bottom Chinese and Malay wooden boat. Apitua is described as being off the main island of Katamai, and these are both fictional islands, supposedly in the South China Sea, because I looked that up to see if they were real places, and I couldn't find that. I want to say the phrase, a grain knuckle of land, is beautiful. Yeah. That's a chef's kiss. Really good writing by Yowers on this. There are so many little phrases, turns of phrase, or... Whatever it is, whether it be, you know, the descriptor kind or like the lore, like we we're talking about just yeah. a second ago. It's so beautiful and brilliant. Really like very lovingly crafted phrases. Yeah. That are just really, oh, it's so good. It's just packed full of good shit. That's really good. A gray knuckle of land. And Morrow gives some backstory of him. Apparently his parents had more expectations of him than working for the BPRD. And he mentions that he's written articles on the... Yamato no Orochi, 
and that's a legendary eight-headed and eight-tailed Japanese dragon serpent. He also mentions Quivera and Cibola. These are places named by explorer De Coronado as part of the mythical Seven Cities of Gold. He also mentions the Nukubi, and that's a variant type of Japanese yokai or monster, and their heads attach and float around, which reminded me of heads cool. from the yeah. Hellboy short stories. And so mm-hmm. I did like that these references, he's like, I've written papers on this and this and this, and they were all real things, you know, that have real mythology around them. So I did like those details, again, tying into that historical fiction. And yeah, so Moro also notes that he's proficient in kendo and kung fu. Like, okay, so the story's going along. They're... I, I'm starting to settle in and, and forget about, you know, anything that might have been even a little bit off about it. But then all of a sudden it's, my name is Casper Morrow, and I'm a black belt in kung fu. I'm super cool. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is weird. I, this is slightly out of place. But then later it comes back. It to, comes back in there. Yeah. yeah so there, I think what he's doing is setting up this like. I'm so cool. And then later the guy's like, I am not cool (laughs) at all. There's nothing cool about me, which is great. You want that character arc of like growth and learning about yourself and and cool stuff. But at the same time, I'm like, so is he writing in a journal when he's in a stormy waves on a boat? Barely going, I calculated it two miles an hour. Apparently (laughs) like, is it? uh, Well, apparently he's got time to write. (laughs) Yeah. So who's he talking to? Because then, Later, there is growth where he's like, "Yeah, I'm a fucking idiot and I suck, but I'm doing my best." Right, right. And so, who like ha- you would think that if he was writing in a journal, it would be after the fact, and it would be like, "Well, I thought I was hot shit when we started out, but as you're clearly going to see pretty soon, I'm not." Like, right. I don't know. I guess it was kind of just. But like I said, that quickly faded in the background because right. so much of this is great. There's so much of this to love. There's so many well crafted parts of this that I. I hate to sound like I'm right, complaining yeah. too much about that because, again, I'm not. That kind of stood I'm out to nobody. You a bit, yeah, yeah, I'm not a fucking author. I couldn't do this, so I, I don't have, I don't have as much skill as this guy does in what he does. So he's good at what he does. It's just yeah. like anyway. So uh, that actually just didn't really bother me because I just felt like it was just kind of setting up who this character was, and he's like trying to tell you who he is and what his background is. And you know, I mean, I don't really feel like he was bragging that he knows can do and is black. No, building yeah, kung fu or anything. He's just like, these are my skills. My parents don't approve of it because you know they wanted me to like my mom. His he says his mom wants to be an author and so forth and all that. Right. So, no, of yeah. course. You know, he, yeah. he's, he's pointing. He's pointing out that he went to a completely different route than what his parents wanted him to do. Absolutely, and that, like I said, this isn't an actual criticism for everybody to uh, internalize. This is more just like where I'm coming from. I've always been a hey, show don't tell. Make that part of the story. Ha- integrate that in some way. I This is where I'm coming from on that, is I prefer to read something where it's like, kind of comes up naturally, and that just didn't feel... But anyway, right. I'm spending too much time picking that apart. You know, there... It's a good. It's got good shit in here. Let's yeah. get to that stuff. There's going to be some little bit of exposition right at some point. I guess. On the boat, Morrow is annoyed that Hellboy keeps calling him kid, even though he feels like he's well-equipped for the mission. And there's this fun scene where he has a flashback and he talks about how he got onto the mission. He had this file that he was returning and he drops it on the floor, all these like 300 pages in front of Kate Corrigan's office. The most ridiculous meat cute of all time. And he mentions the file is on Baron Koenig. Did that ring any bells for Aubrey or Danielle? 
Yeah, but um, the story kept going, so I didn't put too much thought. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know if you remember Baron Koenig. He was a vampire in the 1940s that Trevor Broom encountered. Unlike other vampires, he turned into a white owl instead of a bat, right, remember? Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. And then he was also there with Anders and the Brazina sisters where they were trying to invoke Hecate. And then all the goth vampires got pissed at Koenig for revealing too much to Anders and they killed him. Yeah, so but so he's researching that file, and that's another part where I was like, oh, well, here, yeah. we're linked to the canon, you know? Okay, so I do have a question about uh, Kate being there, because we know that she didn't really join up with the BPRD until right around the time that um, Hellboy quit the BPRD. So it makes me wonder when the story took place. I mean, did Kate... Was Kate part of the BPRD, then left to go be an academic uh, professor? No, uh, no. remember in those early stories, they were all Hellboy and Kate. Wolves of St. August, almost Colossus. But I, I got the feeling in those stories that she wasn't like an official member yet at the time. Like, because mm. like, don't you remember, you know, he's all like, you know, you should come back. Oh, wait, no, he said you should come back out into the field. Never mind. I'm just an idiot. <laughs> no, you're not, but she had a different role, still- and that's easy to interpret as her not being. She wasn't on but, the field uh, team, but she was, yeah, I mean, she was, like, in the offices or something right, doing right. coordination mm-hmm. and stuff. Oh, but I guess I guess maybe what you mean is that Manning was more in charge before Kate, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, that is yeah. interesting. I didn't even think about that. She definitely so it, worked it just, closely it, with Hellboy, but it wasn't in the same capacity as... Uh, but it also makes me wonder, yeah. just like, what's when is this taking place timeline wise? Yeah, okay, I don't know. Yeah, that is that is an interesting question. I don't know. And um, I'm pretty sure um, Jerry or Mark will be able to tell. There us. you go. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we we are always like. Ah, they'll figure it. They'll out. figure it they'll out. Tell Somebody us will about help it us. Later. It's a book club. They'll tell it's us. It's a book club. <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't think they'll figure it out. I think they've already figured it out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they'll let us know. They'll listen to this and be like, "You idiots! You absolute morons! <laughs> How do you not know this?" As Morrow picks up the pages of his drop file, Kate starts quizzing him on the Vamican. And so that he feels like this is an opportunity to show her, and Hellboy's there too. So he says, A Vamican is a creature of legend from the Kadamai Islands, a bounty hunter of sorts, usually summoned to track down errant demons and humans who owe a debt to the underworld. It's over 30 feet tall, man-shaped, but it walks on all fours. Its body is armored like a rhino, and its face is made of bone. Oh, and it can only be summoned by a sorcerer or witch. Good, Dr. Corrigan said. Kitschy mole, I added. Perhaps unnecessarily, Morrow says, but I felt I had to prove a point. That's what they call the witches and the cotomize. There are, by all accounts, quite a lot of them. Excellent, Dr. Corrigan nodded, her smile a little wider. Now tell me about the Katamai Island. So I do like that, how they describe she's like, she's in her head vetting him to kind of be like, is this guy up for snuff, you right, know? But again, this is kind of a, it's such a strange dynamic because... I guess I would have probably pictured her being like, uh, thank you for that. You know, like, thank you for that instead of like, very good. Now, what about this? I cannot ever picture her doing that, I guess. So I don't know. This is another thing that a little bit kind of threw me off of like, you know, if she were getting him to debrief them, cool. But she doesn't have time ever for just like, let me see how much you know. Like right. she's she's doing stuff. Well, I think maybe so I you're know, thinking more kind of, of like... the Hell on Earth, Kate. This would have right. been when Hellboy was still there. Sure, and maybe sure. things weren't like they were barely even weren't quite getting into hectic, the frogs yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> so, so yeah. she had time to be like, mm, let me quiz you on how much you know. Well, I think she's. I think she's trying to. They know that something's going on. They have a mission and they're looking for somebody 
who can kind of help with that. Or maybe she's trying to prove to Hellboy that he should take this okay, guy on the mission, go. maybe like, hey, maybe you need someone with you who actually knows shit about where you're going. Right. Let me do this in a covert way. So, yeah, I'll buy that. That's that's not bad. No, see, I took it as like, you know, she she kind of, I mean, Kate's already no knowledgeable. She knows about two people. And like, this guy, he says it's his second week. So she's like, okay, let me put his, uh, okay. his academic knowledge to the test and see. And he, she's all like, okay, he seems good. Tellboy, take this guy. Yeah. Sure, sure. And I mean, like, he also referenced that he kind of, he refers to himself as a red shirt several times. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I've never really, I don't know if that's, that was almost fourth wall breaking for me. Like, okay. Very close to it. Because I know that he's trying, he's struggling to break out of red shirt status. Why does he know that? That's a little bit. So that's it's it was it was funny. I it well, was good addition, but as again, it was kind of like mm, that's borderline for me. Well, no, I just figured that he was a Star Trek fan, and that's like you know right. he's all like, okay, I'm the new guy. Yeah. And so you know, I'm I'm definitely just the red shirt. But it also makes me, but that also makes me question about the timeline because I don't really remember people started referring to them as red shirts until years after Star Trek had ended. But of course, I could be wrong. <laughs> they may have been they may have been calling. Uh, when I say ended, I mean the original series before sure, the first yeah. movie came out. They may have been like you know. I don't know. I wasn't around in the 60s, so maybe they were already calling them red shirts when the show was on. But I kind of feel like that was something that kind of came around in like the 70s or uh, yeah, 80s. I don't, but I don't know. I, yeah. I could be wrong, though. There's a lot of this that I had to just kind of say, just sit back and enjoy this for what it is. It's a little bit unusual and outside of what... Because I'm used to... When I'm reading about Hellboy, it's it's a graphic novel. It's right, sequential yeah. art. It's not... You know, it's a comic book. It's not uh, this. So I think that that is initially what it... Was. Right. I don't know. And so after this meeting with Kate, Morrow, he finds that he's been selected for the mission. And part of the mission is they have to go meet this guy, Cleveland Malik, who's apparently an annoying son of Malaysian millionaires. And the guy cries a lot. And he says that his wife has been kidnapped. Adria Malik. He insists to Morrow and Hellboy that his parents are all behind this. They never liked his wife because she was a peasant woman and they didn't agree with the marriage. Malik believes his wife was stolen by the Vamican and speculates that his parents could have hired a witch to summon it. When I was listening to the audiobook, I felt like they kept calling her Idra. But I mean, I don't know. Just because one person was reading it doesn't mean they're pronouncing it correctly. I yeah. So that's that's interesting that you okay. bring that. That's cool that you bring that up because I actually didn't. I was reading it like from the book. So maybe yeah, that's cool uh, maybe know. that's like the. It seems like these people are all of Malaysian descent, so maybe they have a different way of pronouncing that. And I'm more pronouncing it like the American way or something like that. All right. Anyway. I mean, then, they probably would have gone then, to the source, like the person who wrote it. Like, how do we pronounce this though? Right. Like the author. Not. not not necessarily, because oh. I remember listening to a book, an audio book once where um, the and it was a true it was like a true crime thing. But they kept talking about this place called Quantico. And I'm like, Quantico, Quantico? what is that? And, and I was like, holy <laughs> shit, they mean Quantico? Oh, common sense. Not all that common. Pronunciation yeah, so. Corner. Pronunciation, Pronunciation corner. corner is back. Pronunciation Corner. So anyway, I just, I just wanted to bring that that up about how I was. No, yeah, said sure, absolutely. The- and I, I did research Vamican. That also is a creature that was made up for this story. I didn't find any kind of reference to that in the lore. There's a lot of cool shit that this guy made up for this story. Yeah, a lot really of badass is. shit in this book. And so Cleveland Malik, he says that his parents could have hired a witch to summon it, and he suggests that the BPRD interrogate his parents. The crew would have to go to Apitua and find the Kimichul witch who summoned it. 
And they're like, I don't know about this guy. This guy, something's off about this right, guy. It's yeah. a little bit, uh, this guy kind of sucks. We're not sure why, though. And he's like, he's telling them that they'll be safe over there with Hellboy. These witches wouldn't dare hex a demon, he says. Trust me, you'll walk on and off the island unscathed, And it says. is really cool the way that the author hangs on this moment a little bit too long. Like, in a good way. Right. It, it sets it up so well. Yeah. For later. Like, it is it is so good. Like, he's really... It's not obvious why this guy is so obsessed with the fact that, oh, yeah, Hellboy, you're, you're going to be able to handle this island. And right. And I am confident that you can totally go there and it's fine. And so, like, later you kind of... Right. Like, oh, that's what's going on. So, that's good shit. Back on the boat with Hellboy and Moro back in, like, kind of the present tense, I guess... The boatman stops about a half mile from the island and he won't go any further. And so there's this scene where Hellboy is arguing with the boatman. Come on, old man, crank the motor. Let's go, Hellboy says. You swim, the boatman responds. Here is good. Swim like a big red fish. <laughs> I, like I think, that. is this the, are we at the point where our um, our main character guy is talking about the lack of birds? Our main character guy says, I look for birds circling above the island but see none. So there's like a distinct lack of birds. Oh, okay. Which yeah. is, I mean, that's, you know, there's something wrong going on. And there's I, always fucking birds. And I think that's come up in the Hellboy comics before yeah. where they notice there's no birds so around that, or there's that no animals. that immediately instills yeah. this like kind of a chilling, like, oh, yeah. oh shit, what the fuck? You know, that's because that's, that's unusual. You, you always hear or see birds everywhere you're at. So it's kind of like, if if you're not seeing that, if you're looking for that and you don't find it, you're in an area that's a little bit unusual, like maybe it's 150 fucking degrees. Right. You're in Death Valley, or you're in a place where birds don't go there because there's something fucked up yeah. about it. Creepy things are Super happening. Super creepy, yeah. Although I would say this one scene kind of reminded me of that one episode of Futurama um, where they go spend the night in the castle or something, and they're like, I could take you this far and no farther. And they're just right outside the castle. Yeah. And it keeps going, yeah. <laughs> But, I mean, it's just like that whole kind of, like, you know, peasant superstition thing. Like, we won't go any further or anything like that. Right. Just, whenever I think of that, I just think of that Futurama episode. I will go this far and no further. Moro from the boat, he thinks he spots something creepy in the tree line with a glowing green eye. He thinks about telling Hellboy about it. And he wants to tell Hellboy that they should turn back. But then he thinks of returning to the BPRD without his wings and his red shirt neatly buttoned. Mm -hmm. That's where he makes that comment. And if you're going to have a big, giant monster reveal later, yeah, give us a little glimpse of it early on. Absolutely do that. That's fantastic. That is some tension building shit, and I love it. Marl says he would be just another generic field agent, and he thinks of his mother telling him that he should write fiction. He told her that he would rather live the story. So then he dives in the water. Oh, man. And we get another flashback of Hellboy and the BPRD interrogating Malik's parents. But they seem to know nothing about the kidnapping. And they seem like nice people. The mother is charmed by Hellboy. So Morrow, he can't tell who to believe. Hellboy surmises that this Vamican bounty hunter may have taken the wife because she owed something. Something Morrow hadn't considered yet. I like how Hellboy's like, well, maybe nobody kidnapped her. Maybe there's another reason why she was taken by this bounty hunter thing. Maybe it's something that she did, you know? I like how you said that uh, he's interrogating the parents when it basically says he didn't interrogate the parents. Well, yeah, no, they just question them, yeah. Yeah. 
We cut back to them swimming towards the island, and Mauro has a hard time. He has to, like, doggy paddle most of the way. And they describe Hellboy swimming and using his tail and stuff like that. Have we ever seen Hellboy swim? Uh, uh, what about in uh, when he sure, went yeah. to meet the Bogroosh? Oh, right. I guess he was I mean, underwater that whole time. time. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, I don't know if we've ever actually seen, like, a um, like an illustration or a tablet uh, of him swimming. I can't remember it. Yeah. As they approach the island, they approach the shacks and cabins on Apitua, and they describe being surrounded by the Kichimul witches, who they who descend the tree trunks like spiders. The Kichimul are described as spindly and hideous. Their mouths are torn rags, and their hair clotted with moss and fungus. I love the way they talk. That's super good. Yeah, and so Hellboy interacts with this one witch for questioning. He says they're looking for a woman. And she's like, a woman, fleshy ripe, for eating? And when she says for eating, Hellboy says not for eating. <laughs> I like that. Not for eating. Where is she? Chomper like a apple, she says. <laughs> she's not for eating, Hellboy what says. One of my favorite lines, chomper like a apple. It's great. Juicy. Um, Every time I eat an apple now, I'm going to tell you I'm chomping the apple. And it's juicy. So finally, you know, Hellboy, he grabs the witch by the throat. He's had enough of that shit. So finally, the witch points frantically at her throat. Hellboy loosens her grip, and she tells him, middlewise, look for the vainsome one. Yeah. And they're like, vainsome? She of the newest smile. Excellent. Yeah. She's the one that called the taker. The taker, Moro says, the vamican. And so Hellboy opens his fists, and the kitchenwool falls to the ground. He describes her... Falling like a set of discarded bagpipes. Oh, no. I like that, yeah. <laughs> so they follow this middle way, and they see something coil through the gloom. I like how Hellboy tells the rookie uh, you know, to go back to the beach, and he's like, no, I'm safer with you. And then he's all like, he thinks he's going to argue, but um, he maybe sees the logic in it, and you know, they keep going. So I kind of like that little thing. You know? Yeah, that was a good moment. As they head inland... They see a lot of weird shit. They see all these weird monsters. Hell yeah. At one point, we pass a haze of fish-sized pods that puff through the air like jellyfish and glow. Horned snakes drip from the trees and regard us hatefully. I love all of this. We don't make eye contact, Hellboy says. He's like, don't look yeah, at any don't. of that stuff. Look at that shit. <laughs> we pass a sprite-like kitschimul the size of Hellboy's finger. She hops onto his shoulder and offers to make a light spell that he can scatter onto the pathway before him. Like hen feed. It's dark away, she warns. I can handle the dark, Hellboy says. Just point me towards the vainsome one. And she points a tiny finger. Past the nine shy. So then they approach these nine shy, and they're described as tall and pale, slender as reeds. Black hair hangs almost to their knees. It covers their faces. They turn away as we approach and whisper in their own language. It's such an exotic bird song sound that I wonder what harm they could possibly do. It's only when Hellboy grabs my arm, Moro says, that I realize I have been drawn close to them. That's yeah, so good. that's really cool because it's like he doesn't that's even realize that they're like drawing him in with this bird song thing. I can picture this happening too. Yeah. Like it's really, this is fantastic. They point into the trees above the Nine Shy, and there are all these bodies hanging there, and they see like a half pig. And these lizard things and all this kind of stuff, the remains of what might have been a horse, they all have been lured by the Nine Shy's exotic whispering. I like the way that the dawning horror is described. 
because we get a blow by blow, like we get a play by play. It's very well done. It occurs to me that I'm not ready for this and may never be ready. Without Hellboy, I'd be witch food by now. My bones would be used in spells that raise the dead and bring rain. My brain would be divided nine ways. Yeah. He's he's like, this is bad. Yeah. I'm, wow, I'm way, I'm in yeah. way over my head. I'm fucked. And I, and I like it because he's like, you know, earlier he was just saying like, you know, about the black belt sure, and kung fu. Yeah. And he's all like, like, he's like, and he's now coming to realize that maybe he isn't as ready for this as he thought he was. <laughs> right. Maybe you kung know. fu won't help. Yeah. He asked Hellboy, how many witches live here, do you think? Too many, Hellboy replies and almost cracks a smile. But I haven't seen a chicken leg house yet, so that's a good thing. We know what that means. Yeah, so I like that wink, little detail wink. there too. After this encounter, they approach a shack that is surrounded by strung up mirrors on branches all around. The Vainsome One. So that's what that meant. Yeah. The Vainsome One. Someone who has to look in all these different mirrors. So I do like that detail. And of course, you know, the description of all of this is so brilliant. You know, how there's... They're, oh, they're hanging from the branches, spinning, catching the light from the torches, and the, some of them are long, and they're compl- and some of them are just jagged shards, and some of them are, you know. So that's right. You could, I get such a complete picture of that right. from this description. Really, really nice. But yeah, the that's so clever. The vein, someone that there would be mirrors hanging from all right, the branches yeah. and shit. That's fucking gold. The kitchen wool comes out and appears to have a mouse stitched onto the lower half of her face, like a skin graph. A beautiful smile, Moral describes. The rest of her face is covered with a shawl. And the witch kisses at the mirrors as she comes out, and she offers Hellboy a kiss too. Not in the mood, he says. And they ask for the woman, Idra. The kitchen wolf says that she's there, but she won't go with them. She's a rot face now. And as they talk, it's revealed that Hellboy was right. Idra was a peasant woman who wanted romance and riches. The witch wanted her soul, but Idra said she still had use for that, so the witch asked for her smile. Maybe Idra thought she meant her happiness, but no, she meant the actual part of her face, right? Another thing is that Morrow keeps seeing something out of the corner of his eye in the tree line. I like the the setup to that, you know, the whole time... Because at first you think maybe this is just for atmosphere and effect and it's trying to creep you out and make you feel scared. And it does all that, which is good. But also it is setting up such an important fucking reveal. So it's doing those two things at the same time where he's like, oh, I saw something out of the corner of my eye. But then it's the jungle and oh, no. Right, and then yeah. it's like, then the thing happened again. And you're like, oh, I'm starting to think that this is a thing again. And it's like, I saw it again. And you're like, oh, this is definitely a fucking thing. And then when it's, oh, it's, oh. Idra eventually met Cleveland Malak, the spoiled son, on her 18th birthday when he fell off a horse and she tended to him. On their wedding night, the witch went to get what she was owed, but Idra said that meeting Cleveland Malak was not witchery, it was luck. And she summoned guards on the witch, so the witch went back to the island and she'd summoned the Vamican. Hellboy again asked for the woman. She is called by the Kichimul witch, and Moral describes her. Moral says... The sound of her crying, sobbing is so sweet and appalling, I want to cradle her. I want to cover my ears. She reaches up with one hand and lifts her hair from her face. I have no words, Morrow says. Perfect eyes, yes, deep and brown. Her brow is smooth and shapely and her nose is a button. 
there are diamonds in her earlobes. Below that button nose is the wretched maw of a 200-year-old crone with blistered lips and cracked, furrowed skin. It drools and snarls with a life of its own. An oval of bleeding, infected stitchwork surrounds it. And then the Kitchimal Witch, she throws off her shawl and she reveals that she has the inverse face. Green eyes buried beneath the pitted shelf of her forehead. A gaping hole for a nose... Open sores splash across her cheeks. Don't we make a fine pair, the Kitchimul says. So the Kitchimul has an old face and the beautiful smile. And then Idra has a beautiful face and the old woman's smile. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that that was super creepy. It's very Man, fucked up moment. I agree with both of your statements. <laughs> but so well done. I mean, so well done. That had to be so carefully constructed for that to have the impact that it did for me. I was horrified when I read this. I was like, uh. But I mean, looking back, like maybe I should have seen that coming, but the like the emotional impact of it is all in, in the writer, man. Yeah. It is all in how carefully the, the pacing and all of that is fucking great. Oh, yeah. And so all of a sudden, Cleveland Malick comes out. He was one of those things that Morrow kept spotting in the tree line. He followed them there. He used the BPRD to lead him to the Kitchimal witch. The witch says, she promised me her smile. Debt paid. You can take her home now. That thing, Malik says, as he points at Idra, his lips twisted into a scowl. I don't want her. She can stay here with the rest of the monsters. This guy sucks. You're some piece of work, Hellboy groans. I came here to establish a precedent, Malik says. Whether my parents had anything to do with this or not, I still need to show them and the citizens of Katmai Islands that I will not be disrespected. Before all that happened, I like, like when he first shows up and Hellboy's like, this is no, I mean, what are you doing here? And he's like, I go where I please. Like, this is no place for a spoiled brat. And Hellboy's like, you'll get yourself killed. And even the guy's like, you'll protect me. And Hellboy's like, don't count on it. Yeah, right, that exactly. was all yeah. the thing that uh, was set up earlier where he was like, yeah, Hellboy, you should totally go there. Right. Because yeah. nothing can hurt you there. I, I think that you should do it. And he's like, all right. Yeah. And then, of course, that was his plan all along. Yep. And so his plan was for them to lead him to the Kitchimul Witch. And then the second part of his plan was to have Hellboy and Morrow protect him while he kills her. And the Kitchimul thinks that this is really funny. But then Malak does that, right? A blade springs from the inside of his sleeve and he flicks the wrist and he cuts her throat. Yeah, he's got his cool guy. I'm a cool guy phrase i'm a special boy i say a cool phrase before i do this but like he has no idea what he's doing what the consequences are what her cape what what she's capable of so that's the you know again we have uh this kind of running theme now of like the hubris happening right but kind of two different um views of that so one one of the guys is like, yeah, I can totally, I'm going to go in here and prove that I can do it. And the other guy is also doing that, but they're kind of doing it for two different reasons. So it's good to see that juxtaposition of like, they're both doing it to prove something, but one of those things is definitely not good and he didn't have a good plan. Right. And the other thing is like, yeah, we kind of end up respecting this guy at by the end of it. Um, at least I did. Anyway, so that's... An Hold observation up, um, for the book club. Just one, I guess another thing that just kind of proves that this guy is just like really scum is that um, 
he never really wanted them to find his wife. He and he refers to her as property, and like that's why he wants he's going to kill the Kichimon because she took my property. And I'm just like, dude, it's your fucking wife. Yeah. No, yeah. All he cares about is that he you know, he wants to yeah. prove no, no, he's I, a special boy, and he can. Yeah. Totally no, I just do this. I just wanted yeah. to. Uh, I just wanted to add in on the, you know, what a scumbag oh, yeah. this guy really is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that allows us to see that juxtaposition even even more, which is, you know, very well illustrated for sure. As the Kichimo is bleeding out, she's like chanting some words. What is she doing, Hellboy ass? She's summoning the darkness, Idra says. The description of this scene is so horrific. Yeah. I didn't think that this could get any worse, but, or any better. I mean, like, Skill, skill wise, this you know this guy is on fire. But like, as far as the horrific feeling that you get from reading this, like when I was reading this, I was just like, oh shit, he he can actually take this to another level. So the description here of all this stuff that's happening is um, it's impressive in its severity. Yeah, <laughs> it's the Kichimu uses her blood to paint a symbol on her forehead. Then dips her fingers into her open throat and paints a second larger symbol on the forest floor. The person who uh, read the audiobook did a really good job of just making this feel super scary and creepy. You just oh, kind of okay. kind of made, made your skin kind of crawl, or at least mine did when I was listening to it. Yeah. You know, so I just yeah, wanted to like, yeah, add absolutely. in on that. That's great. Yeah. You gotta love it when that happens. As I was reading this, I was just the calmness with which this is described. It's and it's describing such horrific shit. That that alone is very creepy. So the fact that he's not he's not yelling or screaming no with lots of exclamation points in all caps. It's just when that fucked up shit starts to happen, you're just like, there's nothing stopping this. What is going on? This is bad. And so that's, yeah. I'm glad they did a good job with that in the audio. That's cool. Something screams through the branches. It's followed by an earth-shattering thump. The trees crack and sway. Whatever it is, it's coming closer. Idra turns her eyes to the darkness. Her ancient mouth trembles. All of them, she says. And so here, there's a, a great action beat, right? All these creatures kind of come down. That's what the Kichimul did when she, like, painted that symbol in blood. They emerge from the gloom with tough, glistening bodies and ready mouths. They snatch at the air and squeal. Hellboy clenches his fist and his tail flicks. Give it everything you got, kid, he says tomorrow. We ain't going down without a fight. The creatures attack. We defend, Morrow says. Hellboy swings his right fist to the music of exploding bones. I brandish my makeshift shanai, and so he grabs like a stick and he makes a shanai out of it. This is a weapon used for practice and competition in kendo, representing a Japanese sword. I managed to keep the creatures at bay, Morrow says. I recall my earlier anxiety, that feeling of being out of my depth. It's still with me, I realize, but now it fuels me. And I really like all this kind of action beat. He's describing Hellboy uh, smashing all these things. He says he smashes two more together like symbols, then grabs another by the throat and introduces it to that big right hand. Yeah, so all the descriptors of skulls caving in and all these kinds of things, scaly things and wing things and horned snakes all attacking them is really good. I mean, it just really paints a, a great picture. And like, I want to see these things. I want to see these monsters. This is where I'm like, man, I would love to see what this action oh, scene yeah. looks like and what all is, these creatures are like. At oh, one, yeah. At one point, a wolf creature approaches from behind and it's about to get Malik, the little scummy guy. And Morrow actually defends him, right? And so he's got like a good action beat where he actually kills 
this werewolf thing by puncturing it in the eye. This, uh, this like next section, we're, like we're into, like if this if this were a comic, we'd be like several pages of just action beats with no dialogue, except for like the the little you know bits here and there. Right. But, yeah. uh, so we'd be like, you know, and he's just like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, <laughs> you know. They also so, men- worse and worse. They also mention a bird with thick leathery wings swoops down, and that makes me think of those harpies and stuff like that that right. we've seen before. I'm like trying to picture all these monsters in my head as I'm going through this. And so they're getting all tired. Don't give up, Hellboy tells him. I don't, Morrow says. My stick breaks. I'm left with two halves. We fight. And so I guess after they kill all the monsters, there's like a brief pause in the action. Is it over? Morrow asks stupidly. It's only just the beginning, Idris says. There's a scream, a crash, a sound like trees being uprooted and tossed. Hellboy and I stand back with Idra crouched below. She points and I see it. A part of it, anyway, snaking between the trees. Malik's seen it, and it's too much for him to handle, because he screams and makes a run for it. They describe it as a, um, a uh, gray, ropey body, yeah. as broad as a freight train. And that's what he had seen from the tree line. When he gets close enough, he can see its scales and thorns, and the thousands of snakes latched onto its back, like cleaner fish feeding on dead skin and nutrients. It growls and the island shakes. It circles us. I like the idea that it's got all these snakes on its back. That's so... I don't know if I've ever seen anything like that. Well, and they, they detach and they go, like, attack that guy. Right, yeah. And then they go back and they're like, all right. Yeah, so that's the part where um, Malik kind of gets his... Gets what he... what uh, He gets his. Yeah, he, he gets his four or whatever. Because um, all the snakes kind of get him. And then the monster... I guess this is the Vamican. It, like eats him up or something he got his and in the background morrow hears the nine shy and their deadly bird-like song he says if i can choose a way to die it will be with them that stuck out to me yeah i liked that and hellboy's like like, well fuck this i'm going over there that seems cool and it says sorry kid hellboy says as if he read my mind it's great this ain't no way to earn your wings and so all of a sudden morrow gets an idea he picks up the dead Kichimul's discarded shawl, and he tells Idra to put it on. And so she does. And Hellboy's like, yeah, yeah, do that. You know, he kind of figures out what's uh, yeah. what his plan is here. And so Idra, she poses as the Kichimul witch to try and, like, call off the this monsters so and cool, stuff like man. that. This is so cool, man. Which I think is really cool. Yeah. yeah, it's a great moment. And they talk about that the illusion isn't perfect, but Idra does a good job of, like, saying all the stuff in the witch language and all the kind of chanting and stuff like that. This is a great way to break up the action into different types of action. And like, it's still, there's still a lot of like tension in the scene. And you're still like, Oh, it's still going right. Right. And it's still a lot of action, but it's like a different kind of action. You're like, Oh, what's going to happen? The tension. Oh, they're, they're going back to the forest and they're going out. So it's, it's so smart to put that in there and have that whole, it, it really gives you a break from, the same type of action you right. kind of get different stuff so it's that's... more like uh intense or it's more um god how do i want to say it? suspenseful it's suspenseful yeah because it, it's like it, an intellectual kind of action it's like a ooh. well it reminded me of like on zombie movies where people like put all the blood on them and they sure. try and walk amongst the zombies right. and it's like okay is this gonna, is this work? gonna work or not and yeah. then the zombies are kind of like is it really a person or and there's always like you know it yeah. just creates a lot of tension where you're like ooh, are they gonna get away or not this guy did it a little bit 
in a, even more of an interesting way too because with that it's like it's either going to work or it's not because right, they don't yeah. have any intelligence with this you're actually she's communicating with other creatures all different types of creatures and she has to speak in that like witch language and she has to emulate this she almost has to have some of that magic like properties of right. herself so she, and she's not only got to be convincing but she has to have a commanding presence, I guess, right. is what I'm trying to say. So, yeah, that's that was a really cool thing. Because we're getting... I'm Just when I'm starting to get sick and tired of, like, fight scenes with fucking monsters and stuff, we get a totally different thing. Yeah. And I was, oh, I was like, yes, this is great. So, And one thing that I thought was really creepy is he talks about the Vamican, like, it won't... It stays close to them. He says... It doesn't help my nerves that the vast creature is always close. It won't let us stray from its sight. It doesn't trust us. Well, and right before that, they uh, they're so they're passing all these other creatures. They they pass the nine shy again, which I'm so, I'm so interested in these fucking yeah characters. And uh, they start to do their birdsong whispering, and she's like, "Nah, cut that shit out." And right. They stop. And they stop. They listen to her. And up until now, I was like, "Oh, these are like super powerful beings," but she's like, "Nah." And so they're like, "All right." That's kind of, they're like, hey, one wrong move and that's all it's going to take. Uh, the big ass monster is always near. It's going to get us. So that keeps building that tension more and more. And it actually kind of forms a wall that blocks their way with all the cleaner snakes and all that it's stuff. It's like, no, no, no. I don't know what's going on yeah. here, but I don't like it. And she again, you know, says the, Hydra right. says, you know, the witch language. And uh, I like this part where he says... The mouth widens. The smell is blood and rot. I see a severed hand adored with an expensive gold <laughs> ring caught between two of its teeth. The rest of Cleveland Malik is somewhere inside. Uh, it breathes on us, geez. he says. <laughs> That's uh, just gross. Yeah. And so they almost make it out when all of a sudden a spindly hand reaches from the low branches and whips the shawl off of oh, Idris' no. head. <laughs> it's that witch. It's the one from the beginning that Hellboy grabbed. Those chickens came the, home to roost. Yeah, the, the spider witches or whatever from the trees. Juicy and sweet. Yeah, she says, chomp her like a happle. Chomp her like a happle. <laughs> Everything stops, Morrow says. I feel the entire island take a breath. <laughs> I look at the vast creature... All of its mouths and eyes are open. Run, I says. That's such a good yeah. moment. Because all of that tension that's been building this whole fucking time in this whole story, just instantly, I mean, that is masterfully done. Really, there's such a good feeling to be like, the entire island takes a breath. Oh, shit, run. Like, fuck, we're fucked. Yeah. Like, this is such a fucking uh, scramble moment. Is so well done. And it's after good. the fight scene, Morrow describes himself as being so exhausted, you know, he can barely make it. Hellboy has to tell him, give it everything you've got, kid. And Hellboy actually lifts up Idra, and they make a break for it. They really hammer home the, f the exhaustion and the, like, how is Hellboy even still going? Because this guy is not going to make it. Right. This, just from the exertion alone, this guy is like going to die. And so you get the... I kind of think back to like every story we've seen Hellboy in and how fucking beat up he gets. And he's like bleeding from all these wounds and he's like uh, still fighting. And so that kind of gives it a more extreme context just in um, for me. And he talks about, I like this, Hellboy is 20 yards ahead of him. And he can feel the monster on his oh, back, man. you know what I mean? And he's trying to make it, but he's, like, totally exhausted. I stagger but manage, he says, somehow, to keep my balance and push on. 
I smell the meat on its breath. I wonder if I will ever be this afraid, this strong again. I like that line a lot. And so he says, I don't stop and I don't stop running until I hit the water. And then when he hits the water, he starts sinking. Like he's just so exhausted he can't even swim. <laughs> he's kind of like, oh, this is nice. Yeah. I might just stay here forever. <laughs> and Hellboy saves him. He reaches down and he feels the stone hand lift him up. Casper Hellboy says, hey, kid, you still with us? And Idris says that they're safe now. She's tucked under Hellboy's other arm. They don't like the water. And Hellboy asks if he can swim, but he says not yet. So Hellboy holds him as he catches his breath, and they start swimming. And I want to read this last part. Malik's boat is anchored nearby. It's as gaudy and narcissistic as the man himself. We swim past. We don't want any part of it. So even though they see that nice boat, they're like, we ain't going over there. We don't want anything to do with that. Our humble sampan waits a half a mile offshore. We board gratefully. The boatman bickers with Hellboy about costs. Then he rips the outboard motor into some kind of life and we are off. I never look back, Morrow says. Not once. Idra has torn a strip of her dress away and wrapped it around the lower half of her face. She looks dangerous and beautiful. Hellboy sits in exactly the same position as he did on the outbound journey. At the bow's stern, head down. He says nothing. His huge back rises and falls as he breathes. I look at him for a long time in awe of his power and tenacity. This is just one of the many battles he has fought, the many stories that he's lived through. Next week he could be in Peru, the week after that in the mountains of Romania, on and on. The pages of his incredible life are still being filled with color. I'm just another red shirt, of course, and this, our story, will likely fade into the background for him. But for me, it's something I'll never forget. He called me Casper, I think, and smile. Because he mentioned earlier Hellboy kept calling him Rookie. The sampan putters towards Katamai. I close my eyes and consider our story. Maybe I'll write it someday. So this is where I want to come back to what you were saying is, I think this is the story. Okay, sure. He kept saying, like, his mom was telling him, you should write fiction instead. And he's like, no, I want to live the story. And maybe he's like... I feel like this story is almost like, yeah, I went back right. and decided to just after, write. <laughs> after I finished reading the entire story, I was able to look at it as a whole and, and really yeah. appreciate you know everything that I thought was really awesome about it. And so I, I hope I didn't make it seem like um, I was trying to nitpick too much or whatever. I just, um, I certainly uh, got a lot out of the story. I got a lot out of the story and I think that, um, yeah, any kind of little whatever nitpicky stuff is just, that's nothing. But um, you had mentioned um, at the beginning of this last thing that you read here, the fact that they passed this boat by, they're really super nice boat. Yeah. And they're like, nah, we're going to take this crappy boat that we came here. Thank you very much. And I like that just because of, I think that we do a lot of that in our lives too of like, if we can't do it on our own terms, we won't fucking do it. So mm. we're going to do this on our own terms, even if to other people that might seem like a weird choice. Cause to like, if you don't know anything about any of this situation, you're like, but aren't you trying to escape? Wouldn't it be better to be on a nice boat? Sure. Yeah. Logically, I guess that is a thing. But when the, you're in that situation, when you're in their shoes, right. and you're the one in that moment. It is so much better to do things on your own terms, no matter what it might look like to an outside party. So, yeah, they're getting into a shitty boat or whatever, but it's the better choice for them. Right. Because yeah. that's 
it's on their terms. And that is actually very important to this specific situation here. I just wanted to kind of point that out as, as being something that stood out to me. And, um, you know, the kind of overall thing of like starting off a journey with like, yeah, here are my expectations. And then realizing that on your next journey, you are definitely not going to have any of that going on is um, right. is such a cool thing whereas in juxtaposition to the other fucking guy who was like here are my expectations and i'm literally never dropping that and i will die in my vanity and in my lack of humility right yeah. and so those two kind of lenses sort of yeah it kind, I think of, frame, the, it kind of frames the story a little bit those two different paths better yeah. yeah and so hellboy wasn't even really he was just kind of there to kind of facilitate that happening. Right, yeah. So that was that was interesting. It's more about Moro yeah. and how he experiences this mission. Yeah, and how he kind of comes to uh, understand that his, you know, hubris could very well get him fucking killed. Yeah. And, you know, how's he going to learn how to go on adventures if he's dead? Right. So that's his, and his goal is to do things for the good of others. Whereas this guy's goal over here, the asshole guy, he was like, Nah, I just really want to like soothe my fucking ego because right. I don't have anything going on with my life at all. So that was anyway. That's just what I took away from it. I don't know. What about y'all? Like, what was the kind of standout? I just want to circle back real quick uh, to this ending real, of the story real quick. We're just talking about how like you know they get on the boat and all that. It kind of gave me the kind of the same feeling as at the end of Jurassic Park when they're leaving the okay, island. Okay, yeah. And everybody's kind of got that space yes. of we just been through hell. And I could kind of imagine, like, the, you know, especially, like, Casper, just having that kind of same expression, like, something that you've just gone through, something so horrific, and you survived it. Yeah. You know? I've decided yeah. not to endorse your park. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. That's a great parallel. No, I great, love that. Yeah. yeah, so that was a great story. I really enjoyed that one. And um, like Aubrey said, I recommend, you know, uh, going and listening to the audiobook. Obviously, you know, we're not used to discussing the stories like this. Right. And so we're doing our best over here. Yeah, we're you doing know our what best, I mean? you guys. But don't just listen to us talk about it. Pick up the book, listen to the audiobook, and get all the juicy details juicy. and really enjoy the. Really enjoy the the there writing is some from Yowers. Incredible Yowers. lore yeah. building in this. Uh, yeah. So I, I mean, I, I read it very quickly just because I consume that kind of shit. Yeah. Just with it, an unending appetite. So the if you're a big fan of just ridiculous amounts of lore packed into a suspenseful, you know, so this is yeah. Go ahead, pick it up, read it. It's a it's a quick read. Yeah, it's a good one. How many comics do you think it would have been? Uh, I'm a, I'm thinking it would have been a good two comic. Yeah. Spread. Oh, I was thinking like a four-parter. Oh, know. really? I See, I think like out. between two or three issues. Two yeah. issues, three issues. Yeah. Huh. Because I was thinking like you know the the first one would end with uh, Malik, you know, showing up, and then mm. the second one would be that whole getting off the island kind of thing. You know. See, I wouldn't think that all these cool moments would have any room to breathe. You would have to cut out so much cool shit, and I wouldn't want to cut out any of that. Right, so yeah. I don't know. I'm such. Well, a- I mean. But that's just where the artwork, you know, has to shine. Yeah. To that's, what bring I'm saying it all is, there. that's what I'm saying, though, is to have all that, like, in there, like, you would need so many pages. Yeah, but that's interesting, Aubrey, to think about. Like, how would it translate if you tried to put it in How to edit format? that into it, yeah. Yeah, huh. that's cool. Somebody should do that. Somebody make a comic out of this. That's so much work. <laughs> you can't just somebody do this project that's going to take, like, four months of your life. I, I would like to see... Um, you know, uh, now I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but 
I'm a big fan of Bernie Wrightson. Yeah. And one of my favorite um, mashups is him and Stephen King working on Cycle of the Werewolf. Yeah. And as yeah. you're going through that, yeah. there are just like some splash pages of just the action, you know, of just like the werewolves tearing someone's face off. Drawn by Bernie Wrightson. Bernie Wrightson was like, I'm going to go ham on this yeah, real and, quick. And I would love to have some of the splash pages from this story. Oh, yeah. You know, just some of oh, those man. really cool moments and just see what they looked like. You know what I There's mean? There's so many excellent reveals. Yeah. I'd like to see those spider witches coming down from the trees oh, with yeah. all the fungus and the moss. I'd like to see the nine shy. Yeah. I'd like to see... The branches with all the mirrors and The shit. mirrors and the, the two different faces, you know, one with the with the beautiful smile and one with the old crone smile and all that stuff. At and least then, of four books. Really, at least four. I'd really like to, I'm, I would really like to see the monster that ate mm, uh, Malik. Yeah, yeah, the Vamican. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. We, we got to get a splash Wait, image of that. That wasn't the Vamican, was it? The bounty hunter, right? Wasn't that it? No? That no, I feel it? like the, the Vamican was described differently. Oh, okay. Okay. It was definitely one of those things. Right. Anyway, whatever the hell it's called, I don't know. But uh, I would like to see, you know, the thing with the snakes on its back. They just called it the vast creature. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. I really liked that. And for our second story that we're going to check out today, it's called The Other Side of Summer. This is the third story in the Assortment of Horrors collection. It's written by Chris Robertson, who we should know by now. He co-wrote the Hellboy and the BPRD 1950s stories that we've been reading as well as The Visitor, which we read last week. And let's talk about this illustration on this first page, because we definitely kind of sets us up here. We see like a young Hellboy, you know, and I like how you can tell that it's younger Hellboy, um, just from that one image by Mignola. And then there's a girl next to him, and it says Weird Tales. Uh, I really enjoy that. Yeah, this is a, a really a really nice cover. And once again, it also kind of looks like a like a black and white watercolor. Yeah, it really does. I wonder if it is. I'm glad but then you also, that uh, yeah. But then also where it's where it's, you know, the circle and where it's written weird tales, that looks like it's definitely pencil. Yeah. Well, so you can't you can't erase pencil once it's under watercolor. Uh, well, you also notice how the circle is going through the weird tales like yeah. they didn't erase that and all that. Yeah. Oh yeah. So this story opens up in 1950 in Fairfield, Connecticut, and we're introduced to Ginny Payne. She's staying in a cottage for the summer with her mom, who's trying to write a book on the Connecticut witch trials. And she's doing a crossword puzzle, trying to think of a six-letter word for mystery. What do, what do you think that is? Do you think about that? Enigma. Yeah, yeah. I actually Googled it. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I was I, I was thinking Enigma, too. <laughs> the, only re- the only... I have to be completely honest. The only reason i would have ever come up with that is because of the fucking uh goddamn the batman uh fucking movies oh right okay specifically batman forever oh that's one of the things in there wow well daniel so daniel i uh i I am not ashamed to admit that i that's the same way that i came up with that (laughs) now i feel stupid that i googled it no 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 it's just that uh i immediately thought of uh fucking val kilmer and i was like oh yeah that was in there wasn't that it? was in there you're right you're absolutely like, right mr e e enigma <laughs> <laughs> yes oh man perhaps one and eight are 18 18 is r m r e how about mr e mystery and another name for mystery enigma mr e enigma edward enigma Anyway, like, so 
I'm immediately all in on this story right away. Yeah. I'm completely immersed in this and it's it's really lovely. The mom gets a phone call and she gets upset when she receives word that basically her time working on her book is wasted. Her friend Rupert, quote unquote, found out that Arthur Miller is working on a play about the Salem witch trials as an allegory for the Red Scare. Ginny's mother says Miller just won the Tony and the Pulitzer for Death of a Salesman. It's not as if his next project isn't going to get attention. And how right she was. The play reference ended up being The Crucible, a 1953 play by Miller. And he did get a lot of attention for it, although maybe not the kind he wanted. The Crucible is a dramatized and partially fictionalized story of the Salem witch trials used as an allegory for McCarthyism when the United States government persecuted people accused of being communists. Miller was questioned by the House of Representatives Committee on Un-American Activities in 1956 and convicted of contempt of Congress for refusing to identify others present at the meeting that he had attended. The production later went on to win the 1953 Tony Award for Best Play. A year later, a new production succeeded and the play became a classic. It is regarded as a central work in the canon of American drama. I remember uh, learning about that particular uh, play in high school. And so, like, the, the teacher, my teacher was like, oh, and it was such an allegory for the Red Scare. And I was like, cool, I want to read it now. I was like, I want to read it now. <laughs> yeah, and but all of this drama with her mom and her book, Jenny's more concerned with asking if she can go to the bookshop. She's run out of stuff to read. And her mom just waves her off and says for her to be back by dinner. So all of this that's gone on so far, the dialogue is so seamless and and it's so well done and the pacing is impeccable here and it it's very comfortable read yeah it's such a comfortable read for me you were in the you got I'm yourself settled right you in. were all yeah. comfy in the bed reading yeah. it and yeah i'm it's a very you were enjoying it i like the tone of it i like the the voice i like the um i just i just dig it it's I, very my style of- I, I went in there to check on you on one point and you were just smiling and you were like i like this one yeah <laughs> We're also introduced to young Hellboy. He's out walking Mac, and a few people stare at him, but it's noted that a lot of the people of Fairfield have gotten used to him being there. A kid with red skin and sawed-off horns walking his dog. Hellboy told Professor Broom that he was going to walk Mac around the block, but he had an ulterior motive of going to visit Finn's books on Old Post Road. All of this feels so natural and yeah. wonderful, and I'm loving every second of this little adventure that he's on here. I actually looked for this Finn Books on Old Post Road. I couldn't find a reference to that. Okay. Of course, I had to look for it. Right. Hellboy had been around books his whole life, of course, but the BPRD library was full of all kinds of boring stuff that the professor was always reading. History, folklore, mythology. Who cared about any of that? Finn's was stocked with the good stuff, including a rack of pulp magazines and comic books by the front door, shelves and shelves filled with science fiction and mystery novels, and even cardboard boxes stuffed with old back issues and secondhand paperbacks in the rear of the shop. I want to go to this bookstore. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> but it's this, the, the delight that a kid his age would... Yeah. You know, he's in a building full of boring grown-ups all day long forever, and he's like going to this bookshop and like sifting through the comics and like looking yeah. at the cool mystery books and like just the sheer joy of buying stuff for a quarter and getting a nickel back too is such yeah. a fucking you know it's a it's a comfy feeling of like you found some shit to do 
and and it's you know you found comic books and you found all this stuff and i love that little like he's not really going to get in trouble you know right, for sneaking yeah. out but it's still kind of a thrill to be like yeah the bookstore is also like a precursor to like uh what comic stores are become because like back in the day like a lot of people didn't keep their back issues of comics because they would send them back for credit oh, and so yeah. that and you know um People sending the comic books back and the whole recycling and the war effort and all that is part of the reason why a lot of the Golden Age comics are so expensive these days. Right, right. Hell yeah, hell yeah. And Archie Muraro, Hellboy's Hellboy's friend, is referenced. He's off investigating a haunted sawmill, so little Hellboy's been on his own. And when Hellboy goes in the bookstore, there's a girl there, and she's being directed to the area between the Nancy Drews and the Trixie Beldens. Nancy Drew is a fictional character, a sleuth in the American mystery series created by publisher Edward Straitmeyer as a female counterpart to the Hardy Boys series. The character first appeared in 1930, and the books are ghostwritten by a number of authors and published under, under the collective pseudonym Carolyn Keene. And Trixie Belden is the title character in a series of girl detective mysteries written between 1948 and 1986. The first six books of Trixie Belden were written by Julie Campbell Tartum. And Hellboy scans the magazines, and the door opens. He thinks it's the BPRD to come take him away, but it's just the mailman. You said that Nancy Drew was like the female for the Hardy Boys or something like that? That's what it said on Wikipedia. Yeah, so I like the fact that Nancy Drew is still known, but not as many people reference the Hardy Boys anymore. Yeah, you're right. The Hardy Boys (laughs) were the dude version of nancy drew (laughs) exactly also i want hellboy in the story to be voiced by veronica taylor so bad (laughs) well you know what's interesting is the guy um you know he voices hellboy in the first story as the deep kind of ron perlman almost like does he do the voices i haven't listened to any of these audiobooks but in oh yeah but in this one he 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 voices him as a little kid oh that's great with like a high-pitched voice does he do a good job yeah i thought it was pretty good yeah he he, uh he voices like all the characters and so he he does a pretty decent job on it yeah i still want to hear veronica taylor have a go at it but okay excuse me hellboy said hating the way his voice cracked when he talked i like that detail yeah do you have the new issue of weird tales Finn shook his head. Afraid not, kid. The new shipment hasn't come in yet. Probably have some older issues in the back, though. He jerked a thumb towards the rear of the shop. So I like this, too, because, you know, Chris Robertson wrote The Visitor, and in that one, Hellboy is walking Mac and looking for a copy of Weird Tales. So it makes me think, like, after he left the, The Visitor in that scene, maybe he went to this bookstore and asked there. Like, he's going all over looking for the weird tales. I even wonder wonder if some of this is his own childhood experiences of, like, rummaging around in cardboard boxes, you know, is something that comes, you know, arranged haphazardly in the floor, filled with uh, Life Magazine, National Geographic, you know, he he didn't find any of this comic, but he turned up a couple issues of Lobster Johnson that he hadn't read, so, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Like, I wonder if that's some of Maybe the, some of the author's experiences. Oh, yeah. Uh, when Chris he was Robertson, young and yeah. kind of like sifting through, looking at finding all the National Geographics and being like, ah, maybe it's in here. You know, right, so I yeah. don't know. It just struck me as a very like, that is something a kid would do. Right. I remember doing shit like that, like, you know, rummaging around in the library for anything good. I remember there's this comic book shop I used to go to when I was a kid um, that's not around anymore, but we would go through and I would just. 
you know, look at the new releases, but I would always just rummage through the boxes and boxes of old comics, yeah. and it was so much fun. Yeah. And Life Magazine has been mentioned before. In the comics, you know, Hellboy has had his picture in there twice, and then obviously the Lobster comics have also been referenced. And that's a really uh, cool vehicle that we got because if anyone's like, you're like, yeah, Hellboy, I recognize you. We don't have to do this whole, oh, you, what are you? Every single fucking time. Right, right. That would be so goddamn annoying. We have this thing like, yeah, no, I saw you on the cover of Life magazine. It's cool. Yeah. We got that going. So it's just like we're we're past that now. We can keep going with the story. Everything's, you know, back on track. And I, I really appreciate that <laughs> so much. The girl pays for her book, and so does Hellboy for his comics, and the mailman is still there talking to Finn, and they're talking about the ghost on the Gilroy's farm, and Finn says maybe it was a cougar or something. Hogwash, the mailman says. No cougar ever made a sound like that. And outside the shop, on the sidewalk, little Hellboy and the girl, who we reveal is Ginny from that opening scene, they have their little meet-cute moment, yeah, right? Yeah. Cute. Yeah. She asked to pet his dog and they talk. She's immediately so friendly and she extends she's observant and extends her left hand yeah. for him to comfortably shake. I like the I like that they put that in there. I actually made a note about it's a very that. Sweet yeah. Detail, yeah. I also like that she asked to pet Mac before yeah. trying to pet him because that's actually really good proper etiquette if she's, you're meeting somebody's dog yeah. for the first time. Don't just try to because you don't know what that dog's all about. That dog might be nervous and skittish and might right. stamp at you. Well, and that establishes her as someone with a good head on her shoulders. Yeah. And she's, yeah. you know, she's clearly, you know, she's very socially aware. And she's she's uh, maybe a little Nancy Drew. Yeah, she's kind yeah. of a, you know, exactly. she's, she's smart and she's curious and she's friendly. So I'm I'm already digging this, this little interaction here because he's... He doesn't get to talk to kids his own age. So he looks, he's like, uh, I don't know what to say. <laughs> uh, it's adorable. And I also like this little detail where they say that Jenny expected him to be younger. She doesn't realize that he's not even six, even though he looks like he's 15. Yeah. I think yeah. emotionally, though, he also has to, he's like forced to grow because everyone's right. going to treat him like he, the way that he looks. So maybe back at the, you know, headquarters, everyone's kind of treating him like he's almost a teenager and he sort of has to fit into that forced to grow up fast kind of a thing. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Because it seems like he's definitely smarter than a six-year-old here. Well, not smarter than a six-year-old, but I mean, you know, more advanced than yeah. someone who is six years he old ages would be. more advanced, yeah. I think is a better way to say that. And Hellboy's kind of surprised by Jenny. You don't seem to be bothered by a kid with sawed-off horns and, well, and he holds up his hand. I was raised around artists and show people, Jenny says. Nothing much phases me. And they bond over their books. Hellboy sees a monster on the cover of hers. It's a Sarah Jules mystery novel, The Thing in the Well. It's my absolute favorite series, Jenny says. Sarah Jewell is the girl who travels all over the world investigating mysteries, haunted houses, monsters, the works. She gestured at the comics rolled up in Hellboy's back pocket. What do you get? It's kind of kid stuff, Hellboy says. I normally read the more grown-up stuff like Weird Tales. My favorite is Jules de Grandin, the occult detective. And so I did look this up. Jules de Grandin is a fictional occult detective created by Seabury Quinn for Weird Tales. 
He fought ghosts, werewolves, and Satanists in over 90 stories and one novel between 1925 and 1951, assisted by Dr. Trowbridge, who's kind of like the Dr. Watson for DeGrandin. He was a blonde, blue-eyed French physician and expert on the occult and a former member of the French police. Often the supernatural entities in the mysteries are revealed not to be supernatural at all, but the actions of insane, evil, and depraved human beings. So that's what Hellboy's reading or what he's interested in. But did you guys remember Sarah Jewell? Sarah Jewell was with Edward Gray. Oh. Oh, yeah. They had adventures and she was in uh, Rise of the Black Flame. And you cast her as like Joan Cusack, I think, or something like that. Oh, yeah. She was like the Kate Corrigan. She's like the Kate Corrigan of the old school. That is so cool. So here's where we're. I didn't recognize that name. Here's where we're tied into the canon because just like Edward Gray has his Penny Dreadfuls, we're learning here that Sarah Jewell also had her own fictional book series. That is so great. Yeah, isn't that awesome? That's fantastic. I didn't catch that. Thank you for, yeah, pointing that out. Sorry, Aubrey, what? And so we even did talk about how we'd like to see more stuff with her as yeah, well. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So we've we've got uh, Ginny's, you know, kind of looks up to her and is yeah, kind of yeah. So that's I like that. And um, so they're doing their own. They're already you can see where this is the makings of uh, a mystery hunting duo here. Right. And Hellboy is like doing such a good job at making friends here. It's <laughs> so fucking cute. Oh yeah, this one story and. We've got something in common, so let's talk about it. And yeah. That's just great. When the mailman finally leaves, they get to talking about what the adults were talking about, the sighting on the Gilroy's farm. Hellboy goes along with what he heard Finn say, maybe it's a cougar, but Ginny thinks it's the spirit of a witch. Well, I think we actually passed something that's kind of important. I hate to keep going back. No, this, you're but, fine. Um, the mailman stepped outside. They had to step to one side to let him pass. The mailman stared openly at Hellboy as he went by. Oh, right. Ginny glared at the mailman's retreating back. And so then they get on with their conversation. But like in earlier, Hellboy was like, I can kind of feel him staring at me and right. that's uncomfortable. And then he could feel him when his attention turned away from him, too. Right. So they mentioned that in it's the book kind shop. of like he's very aware of people who are like staring at him. And, yeah. He's very aware of that. And he, you know, he's I think that is definitely a key moment here in the kind of overall theme yeah. of what we're going to see Thank you for bringing later. that up. So yeah. I kind of that uh, is going to come back around. point that out. Ginny talks about her mom's research and how there was a witch trial in Fairfield before the Salem ones. Goodwife Knapp, who refused to name names even when falsely convicted of being a witch and ended up being hanged. And so I did look this up. I found this on a website called Damned Connecticut. Goodwife Knapp was a 1953 case. It's the first well-documented in the chronology of Connecticut's witchcraft trials, probably because it was a high-profile case at the time that involved two well-known figures in the early state's history, Reverend John Davenport, one of the founders of New Haven, and Roger Ludlow, the deputy governor of both Connecticut and Massachusetts Bay colonies. Unlike some of those earlier accused of witchcraft, rather than a poor wretch or lowly outcast, Goodwife Knapp was a woman of good repute, a just and high-minded old lady. Knapp was worked over pretty well emotionally and physically during her incarceration. And she told them to take heed the devil have not you. She also allegedly said, I must not render evil for evil. I have sins enough already, and I will not add this, naming of another witch, to my condemnation. Although tempted to give someone over, she said, never, never. She was eventually found guilty and sentenced to hang after her lifeless body was searched for marks of the devil, but none were found. 
Yeah, so that is actually a true case that happened in Fairfield, Connecticut. So I, just, I thought that was really interesting that uh, that's included there. And there is that historical fiction element that we talk about so much in this series incorporated in that. So this is really cool, right? The two sneak off at night and they find the farm and stake it out. As they wait, they talk. Ginny asks Hellboy if it's weird for Hellboy to be the way he is, the way people look at him. I don't know, Hellboy says. Is it weird for you to be the daughter of a famous novelist? But Hellboy says it's not all bad. Broom, Archie, and Margaret are good to him, but he wishes he could be around other kids. I'm a kid, Jenny says. Yeah, I guess you are, Hellboy responds, grinning. Aww. And as they're waiting there, staking out the farm, they talk about their favorite comics and novels. They debate the merits of the different universal monsters and whether pancakes or waffles were the better breakfast food. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think there? Pancakes or waffles? Hmm. I don't prefer either one. Oh, really? Interesting. I mean, I don't hate them, but I just don't care for either one. I like a waffle. Yeah, I think I like a waffle, too. I don't not like pancakes. Pancakes are great. But I like a waffle. After a while, they decide that they're not going to see anything, and they head out. I guess that was a bust, Ginny says. Maybe, maybe not, Hellboy shrugged, grinning. But who cares? That was kind of fun. Yeah, I thought that was really cute. The next day, Ginny is tired after being up all night, and her mom shows her the paper. There had been another sighting not far from where they were last night, but this time there were multiple witnesses and reports of a blood-curdling scream. And so we cut to them, and now they're at the soda fountain at the pharmacist, and they both, like, relay what they've learned. The professor told Hellboy that there wasn't enough evidence for a bureau investigation. And Ginny, she heard some locals were going to hunt whatever it was. Ginny thinks that they've been going about it all wrong. Instead of staking out somewhere we know the thing has already been, maybe we need to look in places it hasn't gone yet, she says. Like in the Sarah Jewell novel, The Mystery of the Sultan's Crown, where Sarah is on the hunt for a manticore in a harem. If you're looking for something that's on the move, you can't just stay in one place, she says. Hellboy rubbed his chin with his left hand for a moment before answering. So you want to give it another shot tonight, he asks. Jenny just grinned in reply. And so we cut to them in the woods again, and they have their flashlights, and they're looking for whatever is out there. And I like this moment. Suddenly, Hellboy calls out to turn off their flashlights. They see the group of farmers with flashlights and shotguns. That's the group that Ginny had heard about. And they talk about a beast. Hellboy and Ginny are able to avoid them. I've got pretty good hearing, I guess, Hellboy says. So I've never thought about this. Does Hellboy have, like, enhanced senses? Yeah. Because, like, he heard them coming, but she didn't. And so she was like, then she's like, oh, that was smart of you to say to turn off the flashlights. You know what I mean? Because they could have been spotted. For sure. I never thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That's neat. Ginny asks if Hellboy has done this kind of thing before. Hellboy shifted uneasily and took a deep breath. There was this Air Force pilot. He'd done some necromancy stuff and was on the run from the law. We caught up with him and... He trailed off, a pained expression on his face. What happened, Ginny asked. Hellboy lowered his head. I shot him. Ginny couldn't prevent an audible gasp, hand held over mouth. I killed him, Hellboy continued. He looked up and met Ginny's startled gaze. I had to. The guy was about to kill the professor and Archie, and Stegner too. Oh, Hellboy. Ginny wasn't sure what to say. So do you guys remember that? 
Yeah. Wasn't it from BPRD 1949? Yeah. yeah, it was. We got that the very first mission that they took Hellboy out on. There was this uh, evil hippie guy. Yeah. And he like blew up a house and all this stuff. And he was about to kill the professor and Archie. And then Hellboy shot him on his very first mission. Horrible. He had to shoot this guy in the head. And so I like that they bring that back into here. And we see that it rocked Hellboy. It's you traumatizing, know what I mean? of course. It, it really did. And like he doesn't yeah. like talking about it. But, you know, I, I do like that we can kind of. feels comfortable confiding in Jenny. Yeah. And that this moment was treated with such care. Yeah, that I I think we really do see how much that affected him, and in turn we can maybe extrapolate how that would have informed him later in life. Sure, as far as like because this in this story, you know, he does something that we see kind of more of that later. Well, what if it's just somebody who needs? What if we should talk to this guy, or what if we? What if it's hurt or trapped or scared or something? You know? Right, what if, what right. If it's not all. So I think that this moment where he's talking to Ginny and that, you know, that reveal, you know, this this um, very upsetting thing that happened. He's A, it kind of shows us like he's he's being honest with her. He's being open with her. But he's also feel feels comfortable doing that with like the first friend his age that he's ever right. had. And then it's kind of showing us that like. He doesn't want to fucking do that, but he will if he has to, and that right. that sets the stage for his whole entire. He he could easily thing. be like, yeah, I saved the professor, I saved everybody, I shot that guy right yeah, in the head, yeah. you know. But he's not no. like that, you know. It's he, very, it weighs very heavily on him. Yeah. It's horrifying to him. It's horrible, and so he's almost like doesn't want you know, almost doesn't say it. it's good. Too many times, like you see in like fiction or something like somebody kills someone and they're like yeah but in reality it's more like holy crap i just killed somebody and right it, it will weigh on you heavily you know and i i like this because we get this very tender moment and then it's interrupted they hear the blood curdling scream of course they follow the sounds and they encounter the creature it's described as the size of a large dog with a cat-like face and black fur and a long bushy tail and it screams out again they realize it's terrified, and they also hear the farmers, the group that are hunting it, coming around as well. Hellboy's immediate reaction is, "Oh, no, it's, we're not going to hurt you." And she's yeah. like, "Oh," and even Jenny's like, "Oh, no, it's so scared. What are we going to, you know?" And so there, everyone's, "Ah, we we want to kill the thing we don't understand." Right. And they're, you know, they have a kind of a more nuanced understanding, like, "Oh, it's just as scared as you know anyone would be if, right. if they were being hunted. This is terrible." And I like this moment here because it says, Ginny turned to look back at the creature which was crouched on the ground in the middle of the clearing, trembling. She thought about the monsters in the Sarah Jewel stories. They were always a threat to be overcome or a menace to be defeated, always inherently evil. But then Hellboy was some kind of demon, right? That made him a monster of a sort. And he wouldn't likely be portrayed as a hero in a Sarah Jewel story, would he? He would have been assumed to be the enemy. A lot of immediate critical thinking going on yeah. by Ginny here. And I yeah. like that we get to take that journey with her. That is, uh, I enjoyed that a lot. That was good. It's not hurting anybody, Hellboy says, but that won't matter to them. And so he tries to shoo it away. And it runs off, and then he takes Jenny's hand, and they run off. And I like that little moment, too, that it says that he takes her hand. You know, Things weren't like in the stories Ginny realized. She should know better than most. I like that little line there because, you know, her mom's an author. Yeah. So she kind of makes that connection of like, oh. Right, right. So this is... um. What makes for an entertaining story and what is yeah, real life like. Yeah. 
And so, but this turns out does make for a great story anyway. No, but uh, so I I think about this a lot with um, alien movies, movies about aliens and stuff. It's always the same shit. Like, ah, there's lasers and we're fighting and it's, we're here to steal your resources. We're not here for any other fucking reason and we don't talk. We're just shooting and spaceships and we're fighting. Right. And so, you know, that's great. And all. of course, Independence Day is a wonderful movie. But is it? Wouldn't it be? It is. Welcome to Earth. Wouldn't it is it, a wonderful movie. Wouldn't it be also something that would be interesting that I, you know, we really don't see as much? Would be, I do want to see the nitty gritty, super boring process of trying to fucking communicate with aliens and live with them. And like, this is a reality that we are dealing with on a constant basis. This isn't a, like a. A quick shoot 'em up thing, and it's wrapped right. up nicely. I don't want to see it wrapped up nicely. I want to see them. So then, a couple of movies were coming out where it's like, yeah, we're gonna try and engage with them on an intellectual level. We're gonna like try and interact with them and try and communicate with them. And so, the more movies of that like that that come out, I'm like, oh, I'm not giving. Yeah. I want to fucking consume all of that. I want to watch every one of those fucking movies and read every one of those comics that you were willing to put out. And the more that happens, I think the closer I get to actually because. Oh, you guys so because when I saw like the whatever the trailers for Arrival, I hadn't heard of it. I was like, "What the fuck is this movie?" Yeah, I want to see it immediately, and so I was so excited for Arrival, and I was so excited for uh, what was that other Annihilation? Fuck, Annihilation. I want to see all this shit, and so like, it's not necessarily fucking bad that this is happening. What if they're not here to kill us all? And it's like, ah. You know, at first it looks like they were trying to communicate, but it turns out they were here to kill us all. And it's like, I don't want to see that movie anymore. I want right. to see. It. So this is, that's what kind of what that made me feel like. Uh, that's kind of what that made me think of when she's talking about, you know, oh, she thought about all the monsters yeah. in this story and how, you know, Hellboy would have automatically been seen as the enemy, but I can't, you know, right. think that way ever again. I can't go back to those stories. Yeah. She's kind of, a switch has been flipped in her head now. I like that. It's really and cool. And so she can't unsee that. She can't unexperience that. The next day they meet again. Hellboy's walking Mac and Ginny has her book and they talk about the previous night. And I like this. Hellboy, he told the professor that he heard from somebody else what the creature looked like because he doesn't want to say that they actually saw it. Yeah. And Broom says that it was probably uh, Glowacus. The Glowacus is a part of a group of legendary creatures in the folklore and traditions of lumberjacks during the 19th and 20th centuries in North America. The Glowacus is described as looking something like a bear, panther, and lion. It is also known as a northern devil cat. It is known for its fearsome screech that compares to the cackle of a hyena. The creature is supposedly blind and uses its sense of smell as well as sound waves. Apparently, according to the legend, looking into the creature's eyes is said to wipe the victim's memory, and it was reportedly seen in Connecticut in 1939. So again, we get uh, Robertson obviously did his research in the folklore on yeah. this Glowacus thing or whatever, and there's some renditions of it too that I found some pictures, and so I'll post So It's pretty interesting because it's described as kind of what Hellboy and Ginny saw. I didn't feel like we were hit over the head with too much of that, though. No, no. I didn't we really feel weren't. like we ever yeah. got into a, uh, this guy clearly did so much research and he wanted to justify the fact that he spent eight hours doing that. Right. So he was going to cram that paragraph in here. I never felt like that. And so I was no, very grateful. I have to come back and cram it in there. Yeah. For us, no, right? I, I, I do appreciate that because I do want to know about that. That is interesting outside of the book. I'm saying while I'm in the middle of reading a book, 
I don't want to stop everything and go do that. But after it's done, yeah, I do appreciate like learning about that. That is super fucking cool and interesting. And I'll go down a rabbit hole. Yeah, but that's uh, it was never. It never felt uh, uh, ham-fisted in the, in the story itself. And Jenny also did some research, and she thought it might be a familiar spirit like those mentioned in the witch trials. But now Jenny thinks that it might also just be an unknown species of animal that is getting mixed up in all this other stuff. Hellboy thinks they should go out with some food and try to get a picture of it. Maybe they could get it to a zoo before someone hurts it. Jenny frowns. She's going back to New York tonight. School starts next week. Oh, Hellboy was crestfallen. Will you? He shuffled his feet. Will you be back next summer? I don't know. Jenny's frown deepened. No, probably not. My mom says she's going to scrap the witch trial novel now that Arthur Miller is going to use up all the oxygen in the room. <laughs> she sighed. Mom will probably end up doing something about the triangle shirtwaist fire next or something else depressing like that. Jeez. And I do want to, I did have to look that up. Yeah. You know, that was a real thing. It was a fire in the Greenwich Village neighborhood of Manhattan, New York City. Oh, it was grizzly. On yeah. March 25th, 1911. It was the deadliest industrial disaster in the history of the city and one of the deadliest in the U.S. history. The fire caused the deaths of 146 garment workers, 123 women and girls, and 23 men who died from fire, smoke inhalation, or falling or jumping to their deaths. Most of the victims were recent Italian and Jewish immigrant women aged 14 to 23. Yeah, zero yeah. safety anything at all. So that that's... Um, we learned about that like in school. Right. And I remember they got into the hole and that's how we started getting safety regulations. Right. Like that is just grisly. It's just really awful. Yeah. Pivoting to something less horrifying. Um. I don't want to. I don't want to sound like disrespectful of the you know the people who suffered and died in that accident. But I did like this uh, moment here. This is such a funny line to me. Now that Arthur Miller is going to use up all the oxygen in the room, she's not saying that. She's not presenting that as her opinion. She's she's repeating something she heard her mom say. Right. Exactly. Which is something yeah. that kids will do. <laughs> right. And it's fucking cute. That's how kids talk. Right. Yeah. They'll they'll repeat something that they heard their mom say on right, the phone yeah. or something, but they don't really maybe quite know like what it means. Or right. even if she does, it's it's still a little bit out of place because that's uh she's just like, Yeah, my mom's like kind of mad about this Arthur Miller guy. He's sort of fucking shit up for her, so we're gonna go. But it's anyway, I thought that was a cute touch. And it says Hellboy managed a humorless chuckle and struggled to think of what to say next. He felt completely out of his depth, unused to situations like this. And so, Ginny, she gives Hellboy her Sarah Jewel novel. And Hellboy tells her to check out Weird Tales if she can find a copy. She says she will. Finally, Ginny stuck out her left hand to shake. I'm glad I met you, Hellboy. I didn't think I was going to have any fun at all this summer, but I was wrong. Yeah, Hellboy said a little wistfully, shaking her hand. It was great hanging out with you. He let her hand drop and stepped back a pace. Maybe I'll see you again sometime. I hope so, Ginny smiled, then glanced around. Well, I guess this is goodbye. Bye. Hellboy managed a weak smile in reply, then stepped to one side so Ginny could continue down the sidewalk in the other direction. He watched her for a long moment, then tugged on Max's leash. Come on, boy. Let's go home. Hellboy headed back towards the BPRD headquarters with the dog's leash in one hand and the book in the other. 
If anyone stared at him as he passed by, he neither noticed nor cared. And that I gotta say, wraps that up nicely from earlier where that he was very aware of what right. people were staring at, and now he's got kind of a, no, I don't give a shit. Yeah, yeah. I gotta say, that the whole time I'm reading this like whole part, like here, I'm all like, you guys should exchange addresses and write to each yeah, other. Yeah, pen oh. I mean, God or damn it. <laughs> they definitely have I mean, stamps at the VPRD headquarters, right? Right, and people used to write to each other back in the day. Yeah, <laughs> that was kind of a sad ending, too, you know, th- that she's yeah. not going to be back. And, you know, Hellboy's made this friend, but he also, I feel like he goes away alone again, you know. He knows that she's not going to be back, and, you know, she's not going to be there next summer. And by the next year, he'll be, he'll look like he's 20-something years old, yeah. probably, well, anyway. Yeah, yeah so. And he kind of ends up doing a lot of that, though, where he meets these people, he does the thing and then he goes on to the next thing and so there's yeah this is kind of that another one of those and um the whole thing where the parallels between we get the example of the the mailman you know staring at hellboy and hellboy being like, Ugh. and then you know later when they come across this creature and uh genie starts to realize like oh this is complex this is nuanced right. we have to i this is this creature is scared like any creature would be if you were hunting it for no fucking reason so she starts to kind of make these connections and and hellboy starts to make that connection too of like oh this is kind of like kind of maybe reminds him of himself a little bit yeah. of like i gotta save this guy oh, they're gonna right. hurt this yeah. guy just like they wanted to hurt me except the professor protected me and so now i'm kind of everyone thinks i'm weird but it's cool sort of yeah so he's like no nah, get out of here get out of here and so that sort of starts off his whole attitude of like let's figure out what's happening and then it whether or not i should fight them right from there yeah. and then like cause some of the times he's like well i'll just talk to this little goblin dude and maybe it'll be okay and you know then sometimes he does have to smash but that whole thing of and at the end he's like i don't care if anyone's looking at me i've got my he's dog come I've out got the my other books, side yeah. of like i can withstand that i can wear yeah. that i can kind of it starts to not matter to him as much right. he's got a little confidence and he's got that and so that's you know that young adult yeah stuff that delicious ya <laughs> novels yeah it, it definitely has that feel I really enjoyed the whole story because it was really kind of nice. And I like the whole fact that Hellboy finally got to meet a kid and, you know, just hang out and, with a kid and be a kid. And they used to, and they were talking about like their shared interests. Like she was talking about the book, her share of books. And he's talking about weird tales and lobster Johnson and, you know, debating pancakes and waffles and all yeah. that. Kind of stuff. It, it was really nice to see because, you know, we've seen young Hellboy stories before, but we've never really got to see any Mac with, interact with somebody that i guess is equivalently his own age so this was kind of a nice you know a nice kind of story on that and then that's kind of like why i felt sad at the end where i was just like why don't you guys exchange addresses because i'm like you know you just he just made this friend and now she's leaving they they only got to spend like three days together and so um i mean but ultimately i felt the story was really sweet and um you know, enjoyable. And, you know, and at first I'm sitting there thinking, is it going to be like a part two? Because, you know, the, the uh, creature just kind of sort of, you know, ran off and they didn't get a good chance to go back out to it. But I mean, it really, the creature really wasn't the point of the story. The story was more the, the friendship between Hellboy and Jenny. And yeah, I, I really loved it. And I, and I like the fact that this is be, this is like, I guess a canon story. So it really just kind of 
tucks in there nicely, you know, how it dealt with his feelings on shooting that guy in 1949. And this is even like a couple of years before the BPRD, Hellboy and the BPRD 1952. So it's just a nice little story of Hellboy being a kid. Yeah, you know what? It is set right in the middle of that, too. It's 1950, so it would have been the next year. And then in 52, he's going to already be an agent basically out in the field fighting shit and having right hand of doom booms and all that stuff. So yeah, this is like maybe the only three days that he got to actually be a kid. Yeah. You know? Well, and having positive social interactions with other people, uh, you know, that he can relate to as opposed to just a bunch of adults like, Oh, Hellboy, what are you doing with those comics? You're dumb and I hate you. Yeah. Like, it's very, you know, I, you know what I'm saying? It's very, um, I can see that would be very affirming for him and kind of, um, yeah. and maybe it sort of helped mold him into the the guy that we love. Yeah. So, I like that. Yeah, so um, I think this was a great episode and I really enjoyed reading these canon stories. This is something a little bit different than what we normally yeah. do. And so I hope you guys enjoyed the episode as well. Next week, we'll be back on some of our comics again. We can talk about the artwork and stuff like that like we're used to. But this was a nice little change of pace, especially after our 100th episode. I thought this was good to have like a little turn here for this episode. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. Let us know what you think of these two stories. And now Aubrey's going to say all the things. All right, everybody. Uh, we read an actual book on the Hellboy Book Club podcast. <laughs> so it only took us, us 100 what... episodes. Right. <laughs> so tell us what you thought by sending us a hey, you damn guys at hellboybookclub at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. You can also find all of our resources on our Facebook About section and our Podbean website. As always, a thank you to Paul from Goddard for the lovely uh, theme music. We love it all the time. As always, thank you to Mark Tweedell for helping uh, John with the reading order on this. And also, John, for editing this to make us all sound like rock stars. (laughs) (laughs) You can find the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. Next week, we are reading Crimson Lotus, part one. So you know what to do. Pull out the back issues. Pull out the trades. I don't think there's an Omni on this one. So, But you can still get a digital. And join us next week on the Hellboy Book Club podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm John Salinas. I'm Daniel. And I'm Robbie Lovelace saying, chop her like a apple. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. <laughs>